All right, well, here we are, discipleship class number seven, and want to welcome all of you in, those who are with us in person, as well as those who are watching online. I'm trying to uh, swap the uh, camera view over there. There we go. Um, Wow, it's been a great day for me. I was just talking to uh, my wife right before we went online here that it's been a good day, productive day. And one of those uh, have lunch at your desk days and get a lot done and enjoy just the goodness of God. So I'm excited about uh, class. I'm also excited about the sermon that the Lord's laid on my heart for our service here at Heritage later tonight. But let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Father, certainly our love for you is is important, but Lord, our confidence and our trust is not in our commitment to you, but in your commitment to us, Father. Lord, Jesus is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. His love for us extends uh, far beyond, Lord, even our comprehension of of his goodness. And Lord, your word says that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Gave his all for us just to give us the option uh, of coming to, to you and coming back to you. So, Father, as we come before your word tonight, we do so humbly. We do so with with great honor and respect. Father, we know that the attitude that we have towards your word has everything to do with what we receive from your word. And so, Lord, we respect your word as as the final authority in our lives, as the truth, Lord God, that and the only source of truth, Lord, that that we have in 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 written form. Of course, we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to lead us and guide us into the the truth and greater understanding of your word, Father. And so, Lord, we uh, surrender ourselves to you and to him and to your word tonight. I thank you, Father, that discipleship is happening in us and among us and through us, Lord, that we are being transformed into the very image of Jesus himself, bringing glory and honor to your name. So, Lord, I thank you for all these men and women who are participating in this class now and for those who will be joining us later, Lord, through the archives. We believe you, Father, for good things for them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Praise God. All right, so let me go back to uh, the title slide one more time. Last week we had the Ministry of Reconciliation on the title slide, but we never really uh, got into that uh, part of our, of our uh, class, and so we will certainly be rolling up our sleeves and, and digging into uh, that tonight. So this, as we've already said, this is class number seven, and uh, we'll be talking about the uh, ministry of reconciliation. While I've got the uh, screen overlay on, let me go ahead and put a few slides up uh, for review. One of the things that we've been emphasizing over the last couple of weeks is that every born-again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry, not just the pastor or the evangelist or the prophet or the teacher, but every born-again believer has been called into the, into, to do the work of the ministry. Jesus said that he had to be about his father's business. It's, it's a It's a family business, and because you are family, because you have been born again, and you are a son or a daughter of God, you have an equal part in this family business. One of the key things that we were emphasizing last week as well is that a giant step towards greater maturity is when you move beyond yourself and serve someone else. We said, uh, related to that, you will never grow and develop until you take this step. So there are a lot of folks in the body of Christ who are very content, at least right now, they're very content 
in letting other folks uh, do the lion's share of the work, and they're very content with other folks preparing their meals for them and feeding them to them, and if, if they get around to showing up and, and eating one every now and then, that sort of thing. Um, but praise God, I, I feel like there's an awakening and a stirring that's, that's taking place in the body of Christ, and if we're going to grow and if we're going to develop in the things of God, we're going to have to take that step um, towards uh, serving others and doing uh, for others. So we kind of reached a, a bottom line on that when we uh, simply said ministering to others is necessary for spiritual growth and development. When, when something is necessary or we could say essential, what we're saying there, and I know it's a strong statement, is that it, it will not happen without it. Uh, you will hit a ceiling very quickly in your spiritual growth and development if you never uh, step outside of it just being about you and for you and you do for and reach out to uh, other folks. And so um, sometimes growing up in church, I, I would have pastors that would uh, uh, fuss at those of us present about church attendance. And, and I was you know, kind of thinking not to be a, a smart mouth, but I'm kind of thinking, hey, brother, you know, we're here. You know, I mean, the people that need to hear this aren't here to hear it. So, um, and so obviously you're, you're here and, and you are, uh, are listening. But even when we talk about being faithful to church, being faithful to church, remember the church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ. The church is, is your fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're not just talking about you know, being faithful to an institution or being faithful to a program or being faithful to uh, you know, some allegiance that we have to some denomination. When we talk about being faithful to, to the church, we're talking about being faithful to the people who are the church. And a lot of times, spiritual growth and development and maturing in the things of God is, is when you realize that, that being faithful to attend uh, gatherings of other believers is not just for what you can get out of it. Certainly when we go to church, we should you know, be fed and be blessed and, and worship God and experience His presence. But when we, our attitude shifts to a more mature way of thinking, when we realize that it's not just what I can get out of it, but what can I contribute? What can I bring to it? And I'm not just talking about a, an offering or a tithe. I'm talking about your, your ability to worship God. Um, I remember years and years ago, um, we we were a part of a of a church that uh, had been very segregated for many many years, and the Lord had laid it upon one of our black brothers to start coming to our church on a Sunday night, and um, and everybody loved him. I mean, it, it was a really breaking down some some walls uh, for that particular fellowship, and and uh, and man, this brother could worship. He was he was a tall drink of water. And, uh, and he was unashamed, and he would stand. I can still see him standing with both those arms like he's almost touching the ceiling. Uh, and, and his worship inspired others to worship. It, 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 worship is contagious like that. So when, when you are faithful to the body of Christ, when you show up um, and, and present yourself and participate, realizing that it's, you're not just there to get something out of it for yourself, but you're there to make a difference and set an atmosphere and an environment for other folks. These are, again, giant steps forward in your own spiritual growth and development. Well, <clears throat> last class, we, we spent almost the entire, entire class in John the third chapter looking at the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus about the kingdom, about being born again, about miracles, 
And um, <clears throat> I always enjoy that class. I, if, if you have not yet had a chance to, to go back and watch class number six, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we, we, we had a, a good time, and the Holy Spirit really moved, especially uh, towards the end when we started bringing some things together. And so I'm not going to try to take an, another hour and a half to, to review all of that. But I did mention that we would start at two of the key points that we arrived at on last class. And so the first one is in John chapter 3 and verse number 8. So let's, let's open there uh, for our first opening tonight. John chapter 3 and verse number 8. So as you're turning there, remember Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was a very prominent man, very respected man, very powerful man, highly educated and he refused to uh, go with the crowd that said Jesus was a phony and a fake and any miracle he did was uh, by the power of the devil. Um, but there were still a lot of things about Jesus he didn't understand. And, and Jesus began to answer uh, his questions. Uh, and as I like to say, Jesus was answering questions that Nicodemus didn't know how to ask. And he was explaining to him that what he was witnessing when he witnessed miracles being performed was actually God's kingdom producing those miracles, the kingdom that was once three heavens away, now present on the earth, and is producing results in people's lives. By the way, that kingdom is still here, uh, alive and well and growing, uh, and we'll talk, we'll spend whole class on, on the kingdom in the, in the days ahead. But in this conversation, Jesus said these words uh, to Nicodemus. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, anytime you, you know, study the Scriptures, reading the Bible, and you come across a verse like this, if you're a born-again man or woman, your ears ought to perk up because Jesus is revealing something about you, something that is true about you right now if you've been born again, if you've been born of the Spirit, that you may not know or understand yet. Remember, um, you became something through the new birth that you weren't before, but you know, that's why discipleship is this, is this process of discovery where we're learning and discovering what's already been made true, what's, what's already become true about us through uh, the new birth. And so he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so what Jesus is talking about there is visible signs from an invisible source. When you see a tree move, you understand that the wind you can't see is causing the tree to move that you can see. And of course, this was really Jesus' ultimate answer when you know, Nicodemus comes to him with this great curiosity as to how Jesus is able to perform the miracles that, that he is performing. Jesus was producing visible signs, visible miracles, undeniable miracles that Nicodemus and others were witnessing, eyewitnesses too, but yet Nicodemus couldn't understand how Jesus was able to do that. And Jesus just gave him his answer. It's something that you can see coming from a place that you cannot see. And the place that he could not see, of course, was this kingdom that's now within us as born-again believers. So visible signs from an invisible source. Remember now, Jesus, and this is not the only place. Understand if, if this was the only place, it may sound like I'm stretching something to fit here. But when, when Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit, he's saying that every born-again man or woman has the connection and the capacity to produce visible signs from this invisible source. Now, one last verse from uh, review last week to set us up for where we're headed this week, and that would be the 13th verse, John 3, 13. John chapter 3 
in verse number 13. This almost sounds like a riddle uh, when Jesus first says it to Nicodemus. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, before Jesus says this to him, and by the way, if you're sitting there scratching your head, what Jesus is saying is that while he was present on the earth, he was also um, present in the realm of the Spirit. So Jesus was, in essence, touching two worlds at the same time. Jesus was, was connected to heaven, but he was also connected to the earth, and he became a channel through which the resources of God's kingdom could flow through into the created realm. Uh, many, many times, and I, I prayed it this afternoon, I don't want to say every single time, because I, I don't want to exaggerate it, but most every time that I have the opportunity to serve the Word of God to, to, to people, I ask, Father, that He would allow my spirit, my soul, and my body to create a portal um, through which His wisdom can pass from eternity into time and space. In other words, I, I want the wisdom of God uh, to, to, to flow through me from God uh, to you tonight. This, this portal, this opening, this, this um, place through which uh, God's wisdom, God's power, God's ability uh, can pass from the realm of heaven into the realm of the earth. And so this is what Jesus is communicating here. Now, <clears throat> I'm spending more time here than I planned, but I feel like maybe it's, it's needed. So let me uh, remind you that before Jesus said these words, he told Nicodemus, and, and I want you to notice as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Jesus was able to, um, a popular saying in our, in our day and time is read the room. And what we mean by reading the room is Jesus addressed people um, at the level, you know, in other words, you see him speaking differently to people like a Pharisee than, uh, you know, someone that is uh, uneducated, uh, you know, even living in sin or, or what have you. Um, Jesus was a lot more straightforward with people. Remember when Nicodemus says, you know, how can these things be? And Jesus just came right back at him. He says, how are you a, a teacher of God's people and you don't know the difference between something that's of the flesh and something that's of the spirit? You would never hear Jesus talk to somebody like that who, who, who didn't know uh, anything about God or anything uh, about the Bible. So don't think Jesus was being harsh or, or mean. Jesus loves you enough to look you in the eye and tell you the truth. And so he looks Nicodemus in the eye and he says, Nicodemus, um, up until this point, everything I've told you, I've I've, I've used something in your world to uh, try to explain truth and wisdom from my world. This is why Jesus used parables, or as I like to, you know, maybe flip a switch on in some folks' mind, put C-O-M in front of parables, comparables, right? Jesus would uh, use stories that we could understand to relate, you know, eternal wisdom and mysteries from uh, his world 
Because that was part of Jesus' assignment. It was to bring truth and wisdom of God into our lives, into, into, this, into this world. And so he's you know, using things that we can relate to to try to illustrate and explain uh, the deeper truths and mysteries from his world. But he looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, you know, I'm, I'm kind of translating this loosely here, he, you know, or paraphrasing this. He's like, everything I've tried to tell you up until this point, I've used something from your world to explain it. And you haven't listened to a word that I've said. You haven't received any of the teachings that, that I have you know, come to, to give to you. And the, the answer that you're looking for, there's nothing in your world that I can relate it to. Now, this is really important because we, we have to understand that, that, that God's wisdom is higher than man's wisdom. And not just a little bit, not just by a narrow margin. His wisdom is higher uh, than man's wisdom as high as the heavens are higher than the earth. So he's in essence saying, look, Nicodemus, to answer your question, I'm going to have to tell you something that there's nothing in your world I can use to relate it to. And that's when he says these, these words, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. So again, the word is that Jesus is touching two worlds at the same time. He is in a unique position to touch heaven and earth at the same time. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, our salvation has placed us in this same unique position. Remember, we began last class with, we're in this world, John 17, but we're not of this world. We're in this world, but our citizenship, we're registered citizens of heaven. I'll show you this in a moment when we get to, uh, you know, really un digging into the ministry of reconciliation, where the, the Bible literally identifies us as ambassadors. We, we are living in a foreign land representing the interest of our homeland, which is none other than the kingdom of heaven itself. So Jesus was in this unique position to touch heaven and earth at the same time. And as born-again believers, we are also in that same position. Let me show it to you in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 4. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 4. Praise God. Let's, uh, let's turn there. We'll look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 2, 4, 5, and 6. All right, <clears throat> if you don't have these marked, you might want to mark them somewhere in your Bible. Praise God. So it says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So it will really help you when you study the Bible if you pay attention to the verb tenses, a lot of times we will, our brains will do something funny with, with the scriptures and, and we will take something that's past tense and either make it present tense or future tense. So he says that we were dead, that's past tense. Made us alive together, that's present tense. And notice verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So these are some of the most beautifully written and descriptive uh, verses in all the Word of God pertaining to our salvation and what's true about us 
as, as born-again believers. We will spend uh, a lot of time on these in the days ahead. I know I keep telling you that. Uh, I'm, I'm really wanting to just tear off into it right now, but amen, we'll get there. We've got to kind of stay with the order of things. So do you see how as born-again believers who were once dead in trespasses but have now been made alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, He raised us up together. This is talking about the, um, the work that Jesus did for you as you. It's, it's the work that He did for you as your substitute. What do we mean by that? Jesus came and, and took the bullet for you. He came uh, when you couldn't live a sinless life. When I couldn't live a sinless life, Jesus lived one for you and then gave you credit for it. When we deserve to die for our sin, Jesus stepped in and died in our place. When, uh, when, when He was raised from the dead, the Bible says in Romans 6 that we were raised up together with Him to a newness of life. And then, of course, we know that He ascended to the throne of the universe and is seated at the right hand of God, now far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that's named, both in this age and the age that is to come, according um, to Ephesians 1. But what we see in Ephesians 2 is that because we are in Christ, we are also seated together with Him in those heavenly places. So just like Jesus, we have ascended with Him. We are seated there with Him in heaven far above uh, every demonic threat to, to you and to your future and to your family. But we're also in this u- unique position um, in that we're here as well. So just like Jesus, we're there and we're here. We're touching two worlds at the same time. I mentioned in the last couple of classes that salvation is not an end in and of itself, but it is a means to a greater end. Or there's different ways to communicate that. Maybe I, I tried to use too many big words right there. But, but, the, but the idea is I want you to begin to think of your salvation as a doorway into a, a whole new a world, a whole new world of possibility, a whole new world of, of options, a whole new world of, of, of authority, of ability, of, of power, as opposed to what many people in the body of Christ think of as, okay, whew, I got saved, now let's just hold on till Jesus comes back or till we die, and we'll go to heaven. Now, in fairness to a lot of people who think that way about their salvation, that's how salvation was presented to them. Uh, for many of us, salvation was presented as um, if you don't want to go to hell and you'd rather go to heaven, then you need to come to Jesus. I'm not saying that's, that's inaccurate, but I am saying it's incomplete. In other words, if, if that's all we ever hear about it, that's all we ever understand about it, then we just think of, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to you know, be satisfied and settle with this inferior life of, of being saved. Uh, when we could be having a whole lot of fun and really living it up, but we're, we're, we're making this trade-off uh, so that we miss hell and get to go to heaven one day um, when we die. And so a lot of people then view salvation as just simply a means of getting into heaven one day. What we see in Scripture is much different from that. What we see in Scripture is that salvation is not just about getting you into heaven, but it's about getting the kingdom of heaven into you so that Father God can then get the kingdom of heaven, its rule, its reign, its realm, its resources into the earth through you. 
Do you see the difference in that? It's, that, is, that is a huge disconnect for a lot of people in the body of Christ in that they think of salvation as a means of getting them into heaven one day as opposed to what it really is, um, is getting heaven into them so that Father God can use their life as this portal, if you will. Uh, they become ambassadors. They become representatives of His kingdom here upon the earth. Now, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm going too fast for you or if some of this is very new and foreign to you, let me bring you back to a, a simple passage that a lot of people are familiar with and maybe some light bulbs will come on for you. When Jesus gave us the model prayer to follow, He taught us to pray after this manner. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be the battle cry of every born-again believer. On earth as it is in heaven. Father God wants to use you to bring heaven into the earth. There's nobody sick in heaven. That's why he says you as a born-again believer can lay your hands on the sick people and sick people will recover. He wants, again, on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom come, that's the, the power of God, the, the resources of God, the rule and the reign of God, the government of God. Kingdom come, will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, now, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 14. And we will look at quite a few verses here. Um, we'll actually be looking at verses 14 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. <clears throat> now, before, um, before we start working our way through these, and I'll tell you what I'm probably going to do. I'm probably going to read um, all of these verses, and then we'll kind of start back over at the beginning and work our way through them uh, systematically. But in the uh, overlay that I have, the, the, the title slide that I have, it shows, uh, for those of you who are listening as opposed to watching, it says 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. And then underneath that, it says the crossroads of many important doctrines. The crossroads of many important doctrines. Now, I want to plant this seed in your heart and mind even uh, before we read through it uh, the first time. So let's talk for a moment about what we mean by the crossroads of many important doctrines. The Bible, a doctrine, by the way, is just a, a system of teaching. So, for instance, you have the doctrine of righteousness. And the doctrine of righteousness you know, is throughout the Word of God. You have how a man or a woman could be made right with God in the Old Testament and then how Jesus changed the way a man or woman can now be right with God in the New Testament. So any teaching that would involve uh, expounding and explaining what the Bible has to say about righteousness, it would, it would be that doctrine, that system of, of teaching. And we could even simplify it and say a category of teaching. You have the doctrine of the new birth. You have the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have the doctrine of water baptism. So don't be thrown off by that word uh, doctrine. But when we say it's the crossroads of many important doctrines, we see that 
so many of the things that we find in other places in the New Testament come together here and are at least mentioned here, but they're mentioned in a, in a way as to connect them with these other things. When we say crossroads, you've got the, it's a mesh point. You've, you've got, uh, you know, not just where they're intersecting, but, but where they're coming together and, and they're, 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 they're relating, you know, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is showing us how all these different things are related to one another and connected with one another. You're going to see the word therefore used more than once in this set of verses. When you have therefore, think of it as, as meaning in light of what you just read. So he'll you know, give us some verses and then he'll say therefore. And then we'll have another set of verses and he'll say therefore. So, so he's connecting and building and relating Again, many important things that we know about and read about in the New Testament, but he's showing us how these things all fit together. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, uh, you know, let's say somebody's like a handyman and they're, and they're good at a lot of things, and sometimes that person, it would be said of him or her, uh, he's a jack of all trades but a master of none meaning he knows a little bit about electrician, electricity, but he's not a master electrician. If your sink stopped up, then you know, he, can, he can fix that for you, maybe replace a faucet for you, but you know, as far as plumbing a whole house, he's not a master plumber. And you know, just all these different things where you know a little bit about um, a lot of things, but not a lot about anything. That's you know, what's this concept of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Well, we have a lot of people in the body of Christ today that are a jack of all doctrines but a master of none. In other words, they know a little bit about a lot of things, but they don't know a lot about anything. And, and that's a real problem. Remember, if we're going to have sound doctrine in our lives, it's going to require some endurance on our part. It's going to take some time and effort on our part. We're going to have to, you know, our, our, our attention span is going to have to, to, uh, <laughs> to expand beyond, you know, just, just a, a few minutes or or, you know, listen, I, won't, I think the Word of God should be entertaining. I'm not opposed to I know there's, there's a lot of hardcore, religiously-minded people that talk about entertainment's ruining the church today and all this other stuff. Well, you know, again, um, I believe Jesus fascinated people. Uh, you know, people would go to hear Jesus speak and would sit there for hours and hours. In some cases, they would sit there for days and not even eat. So, you know, there was definitely, um, you know, an attraction there. And I, I think the things of God should be attracting and, and should, they, they should have an attraction to them and they should, you know, be interesting to us and it should be done with excellence and, and all of that. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. But, you know, at some point we, we have to grow beyond, you know, just what do they call it? Three points in a poem. You know, um, that's kind of an old uh, pastor's lingo for how you build a sermon you know you have three points hopefully they'll all begin with the same letter and then a cute memorable poem at the end and and it don't have to be very long you know to, to be meaningful and you know th this kind of stuff and so the pastor that I grew up under he he um, would say it this way he would say too many sermonettes have made too many Christianettes uh, in the body of Christ and so and there was the idea is if we're going to have some meat on our bones we're going to have to eat some meat and taters from the Word of God, 
and it just takes longer to prepare, serve, ingest, digest um, the, the, these kinds of uh, spiritual uh, meals and sustenance. Amen. Um, and so this idea of many doctrines coming together, <clears throat> this is one of the ways, and I've got a couple of ways of, tr of trying to explain this. Um, when you really start growing in the things of God is when you're able to start seeing what one doctrine in the Bible has to do with another, and then another, and another, and you start connecting the dots, so to speak. When, when we were children, we had these drawings, you know, connect the dot drawing, where you, know, you looked at it, especially from a, a, a kid's point of view, uh, it just looked like a bunch of dots on the page with numbers beside them. Um, and so if you just drew a line from the number one to the, to the number two and then to the three, eventually it would, you know, guide you through, you know, drawing, you know, some a picture. And for someone like myself who, as far as painting and drawing, that sort of thing, I'm not very good at that. As a kid, I was like really impressed with what I had quote unquote drawn. So the idea then of connecting the dots, if, if we can um, understand, you know, this teaching in the Bible and then understand this teaching in the Bible, that's good. But if we can understand how these two teachings relate to and connect with one another, that's like exponentially good. Because that's, those kinds of connections are things the devil never wants you to see. So there's a big word like mayonnaise uh, for this, and it's called either exegesis or exegetical. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard those words and wondered what they mean. Um, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, -E -E exegesis. And the idea is that it's to reveal by unfolding. So imagine for a moment that if you had an eight and a half by 11 uh, photograph of someone that you know, but that photograph was folded with the picture on the outside uh, as, opposed, as opposed to folding it in on itself, it was folded with the, with the, you know, in half with the picture outside and then folded again, folded again, folded again, folded again, until all you got was maybe like this, you know, like, you know, a quarter inch of their forehead, okay? Well, you just look at that, that quarter inch of their forehead, you don't really know who that is. If you unfold it once, then you've got more to see. If you unfold it again, more to see, unfold it again. So exegesis or exegetical, it's the revealing by the unfolding. It's, it's, it's where dots are connected. And however, however you want to look at it, either connecting the pieces together or unfolding it from the Scriptures, what, what we're really ultimately talking about is our ability to see the bigger picture. Come on now, somebody get excited with me about that because that, that's, that's growth right there. That's development when we can see the bigger picture. Now, it's almost like 2 Corinthians 5 is one of those connect the dots kind of drawings for us because, one more time, it is the crossroads of many important doctrines. Now, uh, without any further ado, let's, uh, let's start working our way through these. I'm going to read them. I'm actually read them from the Passion Translation as well and then come back to the New King James and uh, we'll begin to work our way through uh, the list. But let's just let these wash over you, praise God, as we, as we go through this. It says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves 
but for Him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then, so I mentioned a moment ago to look for the therefores, but now then is another way of connecting these things. Uh, so this is true, now then this is true. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Wow. I get, uh, I get just really excited every time I read through these verses, and we will more than likely read through them at the beginning of, of next class uh, as well. Uh, years ago, class number one started right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If there is a biblical foundation for these 36 classes, it is these verses right here, and obviously all these classes are, are based upon and rooted in the Word of God. But I mean this concept of, of a discipleship counselor. Remember, this is not just discipleship class. This is referring to a discipleship counselor, someone who counsels and coaches and mentors and serves and has some level of servant leadership, servant influence on the lives of other people uh, towards this beautiful plan of God called discipleship. And um, this is where we find in the Bible the concept of a discipleship counselor. It is none other than a minister of reconciliation. And we saw in verse 18 where we have not only been reconciled to God, but we have been given by God this ministry of reconciliation. So I don't know if, if as we worked our way through those, if any you know, certain doctrines... Um, uh, kind of, you know, perked your ears up or not, um, I'll, I'll come back through and try to at least point some of them out uh, to you. But before we do that, I want to uh, read these verses uh, to you from the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation. And it, it's similar in some ways, but in other ways, it's not quite as, as drastic a, a, uh, a translation as like the Message Translation. But there's just some ways that the Holy Spirit inspired these translators to word some of these things, I think, that uh, are, will be meaningful uh, to you. So let's, uh, let's go through it uh, this time uh, from the uh, Passion Translation, and, I, and I'll put it on the screen. It says, For it is Christ's love that fuels our passion and motivates us, because we are absolutely convinced that He has given His life for all of us, this means all died with Him. 
so that those who live should no longer live self-absorbed lives, but lives that are poured out for Him, the one who died for us and now lives again. So then, from now on, so then, from now on, we have a new perspective that refuses to evaluate people merely by their outward appearances. For that is how we once viewed the Anointed One. But no longer do we see Him with limited human insight. Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, He has become an entirely new creation. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. Let's keep going now, uh, verses 18 and 19. And God has made all things new and reconciled us to Himself and given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. In other words, it was through the Anointed One that God has... I'm sorry, that God was shepherding the world, not even keeping records of their transgressions. And He has entrusted to us the ministry of opening the door of reconciliation to God. Verse 20, We are ambassadors of the Anointed One who carry the message of Christ to the world as though God were tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. So we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf turn back to God and be reconciled to Him. For God made the only one who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that we who did not know righteousness might become the righteousness of God through our union with Him. Man. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'm telling you, there there is um, a lot of truth uh, compacted into those uh, set of verses. And we will, I, I know, I don't want you to get the wrong impression, okay? Um, it's not like we're going to just every class now for the next 29 classes turn back to these verses. But come class 36, things that we talk about will have roots in these verses. That's um, what we mean by the crossroads of many important doctrines. And it's an understanding of these doctrines, these teachings that enable us to become highly effective in this ministry of reconciliation. Notice the only qualification for having been given the ministry of reconciliation is that for you as an individual to have been reconciled to God. And that ought to tell you something about how thoroughly you've been reconciled to God the Father by the blood of Jesus um, is that you remember I told you class many classes ago anything God does in you he then wants to do through you and so when he reconciled you to himself he then immediately put you into the ministry of being you know you know the ministry of reconciliation or to be used by God as an instrument in his hand to see others reconciled um, to Him, okay? So let's take a minute, praise God. Um, wow, where does time go? 547 already. <laughs> it's just, it just don't make sense, does it? Praise God. Amen. I'll tell you, if, if, um, if it's going by fast for you, then that ought to, that ought to 
again, you, that, that stretch, right, our capacity to stay focused. So anyway, let's, um, I want to go through this one more time, and this time I, I, it's kind of an overview, and I want to point out some of these uh, key doctrines, and uh, hopefully we'll have a little time at the end for me just to give you a real simple explanation of what reconciling and reconciliation means, or maybe we'll do it as we work our way through. So let's go back um, over now. And I'm going to go back to the King James, the New King James Version, rather. And let's look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Now, one of the first things that I want to point out to you in this verse is something that we already mentioned, and that is the substitutionary work of Jesus. When Jesus hung on that cross and he said, it is finished, he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was talking about the work that he completed um, at his father's direction, according to his father's will. Remember, Jesus didn't just do what he did for us. He did it for his father also so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be reunited back into right standing with uh, our heavenly father. So that if one died for all, then all died. What Jesus did for one, he did for all. When he died for all of mankind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We'll look at this as, again as we build on these things moving forward, but Jesus didn't just do what he did for a select group of people. He did it for all of humanity. Um, not just the ones that are alive right now, but Jesus bled to death naked on that cross for people who haven't even been conceived yet um, should Jesus tarry his return uh, back uh, you know, to the earth. He, he, in other words, his work, let me give you a phrase out of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, one sacrifice for all sin for all time. So do you see, again, I'm, I, I, if I don't watch myself here, I'll just start teaching on every one of these doctrines. I'm just trying to highlight uh, you know, all these doctrines that are coming together here and the picture that they're painting for us to see and things that we need to understand if we're going to, to be able to effectively minister to other people. <clears throat> I said it in times past about discipleship, just attending discipleship class even. This is not about becoming something you're not. You became this new creation when you were born again. Discipleship is a process of discovery. Come and I'll give, right? Come and I'll give, learn and you'll find. So the more we understand about the key doctrines that all mesh point here, the more equipped we become to more effectively be ministers of reconciliation. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm kind of stammering a little bit here. My heart's full, number one. I'm trying to figure out where to go next. So much to say. Um, so, if you're born again, you are a minister of reconciliation. How effective you become in that ministry of reconciliation is going to be directly related to how equipped you become by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, uh, to uh, function in that ministry. I use the example of my nephew, Will. He 
picked up a guitar one day and could play it. It's a gift. He has a gift from God to play the guitar. If you ever tried to play one, you know it's a gift. If you could just pick it up and play it, never had a lesson, any of that. But that doesn't mean he didn't practice until his fingers bled. You see, so his, the gift wasn't dependent upon him practicing, but him practicing was to develop that gift so that he could become more and more effective, uh, you know, play more and more skillfully at a gift that he had already been given. So think of the ministry of reconciliation in that way. You're not doing this to become a minister of reconciliation. You already are. But discipleship is about our ability to be highly effective in uh, that ministry. Let's look at this first part, though, because we see if one died for all, then all died. But notice the connection here. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. So we're not just talking about the substitutionary work of Jesus, Jesus becoming our substitute and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. But we're talking about the love that was displayed um, in that act, in, in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Um, we, we see that in Romans 5 goes into great detail about you know, the love of God that was on display when Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. But Paul says it's a revelation of that love. It's an understanding of that love. He talks about this uh, to the body of Christ through his letter to the church at Ephesus. Remember, he said that we would know the love of God, the height, the length, the width, the breadth. In other words, he's talking about the full dimension of God's love for us that he says, by the way, in that same passage goes beyond our ability to comprehend because it's greater than any human brain can fathom. But he says that the more we understand the love that God has for us, the more our lives are filled with the fullness of God. Okay? But we also see another very important connection here. That when the Apostle Paul understood, first of all, how much Jesus loved him, but it didn't stop there because he realized if Jesus loves me this much, he loves every human being on planet earth with this same kind of love. He loves them that much as well. And so this became the motivation. Are you seeing this? This became the, the, the driving force, so to speak, in, in the Apostle Paul's earthly ministry. And it should also then become the driving force behind everything that we do in, in, in way of ministering to other people. It's the love of Christ that compels us. The King James Version says, the love of Christ constraineth us constraineth us. That's, that's a, a, a stronger word, uh, and to me, maybe a little better even translation. But when it says compels or constrains, what the Apostle Paul is literally saying here in the original language is that his understanding of God's love for him and how that translates to his love for every other human being on planet earth left him no other option. When he realized that if Jesus died for one, he died for all, meaning the sacrifice that he made, he didn't just make for one group of people or one nationality of people, but he made for all peoples, that he loved them all the same. Now, it's constraining him or compelling him, leaving him no other option. One of the ways that, that I try to explain this, uh, as, as uh, my children you know, started being old enough, they're, they're adults now, Bethany has children of her own, but back when they were little, 
And we would carry them bowling. Bowling alleys have a feature now that was not available when I was a kid learning how to bowl. And that is bumpers. Whereas you can push a button and the bumpers will come up, making it impossible for a child to bowl a gutter ball. Um, it may bounce two or three times, but listen to the word. Those bumpers compel and constrain that bowling ball to its target. It, it prevents the ball from going off target and landing in the gutter, right? So do you see how important it is for you and me as ministers of reconciliation to have an understanding, a revelation, if you will, of the love that, that, that God has for us, but also the love then that He has for all humanity. Let's go back to where we started tonight, you know, when it's only about us and, and what it means to us and what we can get out of it. Thank God the Apostle Paul didn't stop there. And he realized, hey, if God loves me this much, He loves everybody this much. And this became a constraining uh, factor for him. It, that's what I mean by it left him no other option. The more he understood the love that God has for others, uh, the more he realized that he had an assignment uh, and, a, and, a, and a mission, a destiny, if you will. So let's keep going here. I probably spent a little too much time on verse 14. Let's go uh, now to uh, verse 15. I'll make a run at it from uh, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Another key doctrines here, right? That we've been bought with a price. Our life's not our own to do with as we please that in light of what He's done for us, that we should, Romans 12, uh, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, talking about our response to the sacrifice and the, you know, the price that Jesus paid um, <clears throat> for each and every one of us. And, and then I keep reminding you how that translates to the price that He paid for everyone else as well, and of course in our generation. So, verse 16 begins with our first therefore. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. I have multiple favorite verses in this set of verses, and this is, this is one of my favorites. If you really connect with what he's saying here, Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done for us, in light of the love that He has for us and for everyone else, we're, we've made a decision. When He says, from now on, He's saying, from this point forward. He's talking about drawing a line in the sand. And He's saying, from this point forward, we will regard no one according to the flesh. Now, if you're going to be effective in, in, in ministry, if you're going to be effective in the ministry of reconciliation, if you're going to be effective in ministering to what Jesus would sometimes refer to as the least of these, and that, that's, I know in our politically correct world, you know, it's almost like, wow, you shouldn't be saying that. Jesus was, was the least of these were the people that religion had, had discarded, that, that society had marginalized, that, that, you know, government didn't care anything about helping. The least of these are the people that need the help the most, if you will. But if you're, if, you're, if you're going to commit yourself to ministering to people who have wound up 
at that level of life and society, you're going to have to realize that you cannot judge them according to the flesh. What does that mean? One translation we looked at, I think the Passion Translation said, the outward appearance. The outward appearance. You see, this is the classic mistake many make in the body of Christ. They look at a person and they judge them based upon how they look. They judge them based upon how they're dressed. They judge them based upon you know, how long their hair may be, how many tattoos they may have, when the last time they had a bath, so forth and so on, right? All kinds of outward considerations that people make. How about this one? Um, Jesse Duplantis talks about uh, you know, how many years you know, he would minister in, I'm sorry, minister, listen to me. If you don't know his background, before he got born again, he is a minister now, but before he got born again, he, uh, he played in, in, a, in rock and roll uh, bands all, all over. And he talks about you know, being in hotels, playing hotel ballrooms or, or hotel bar rooms, you know, and there would be Christian uh, conventions going on in that same hotel. And he said, we walk past those people leaving their little services with their Bible. Uh, and he said, never a single time did any one of them ever even speak to him, much less tell him about Jesus. Now, part of the reason for that is they were regarding him according to his outward appearance. They looked at him, long, scraggly hair, probably a few sheets in the wind from as he was an alcoholic in those days and drugs and things of that nature. And, and they made a judgment call. Rather than we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died, their judgment of him was he probably doesn't want to hear anything about Jesus. He probably doesn't want to hear anything about the Bible. And so, again, they looked at his outward appearance and they made a decision. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the outward appearance. We regard no one according to the flesh. Now, listen to this next part. Matter of fact, I'm going to put it back up on the screen. Even though, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him, thus no longer. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him, thus no longer. So once again, we have another uh, New Testament doctrine that's uh, being woven into this, that's being joined together with this, because he just took it to a whole other level with this um, last uh, sentence in verse 16. Let me uh, explain what I mean by that. The Bible says that Jesus is the Word of God. He became flesh and He dwelt among us. So He's living among us as a human being. The prophet Isaiah said there was nothing about His outward appearance that would give you some clue that He was the Son of the living God. Um, there was nothing about Him that... that I'm, I'm just talking about outward appearance. Now, obviously we know that Jesus did things and said things that reveal God the Father and reveal the power of God. But just if you saw him in a group of people, um, there would be nothing about him that would, you know, it wasn't like sometimes you see these artist drawings where he had like this glowing halo around him, you know, almost like some big sunbonnet or something, you know. It, it, none of that. If you, if you looked at him, he, he looked like a carpenter from Nazareth, okay, um, this outward appearance. So he says, look, we knew Jesus according to the flesh, but now we know him thus no longer. What, what is he saying? He's like, look, if we had if only went with Jesus' outward appearance, we would have never realized all that there was to him on the inside of him. Okay? So here, here's the point. Let's, let's just get to it real, real quick-like, all right, so we can move on to some other stuff. Here's the point that I, I want 
us to come to terms with, right? The outward part of a man or a woman does not have the capacity to tell the whole story of what's true about them inwardly. You have an outward man, outward woman, or an inward man, an inward woman. You have that outward part of you that everybody can see, and then you have that inward part of you, that, that man or woman, that person of the heart, that only God can see, that only God knows the full picture and, and all the potential that's there, all the ability, all the gifts, talents, callings, treasures that's been invested uh, in that man or woman. And, and we make a, a critical error when we look at someone outwardly and, and try to sum up their worth, their value, their potential, their ability. And so he says, in the same way that there was much more to Jesus than met the eye. That's one of my favorite ways of saying it. There was much, much more to him than meets the eye. That so, in the same way, there is much, much more to every person that we have the privilege and honor of ministering to. There will always be more to them than meets the eye. If you dismiss them based upon their past or their reputation or their mistakes they've made or what have you, you're going to miss the true story and the real value of that man or woman. And so this is why he says, I refuse to make judgment calls about people, about their potential, about their worth, based upon their outward appearance. And if we are going to be effective in the ministry of reconciliation, we're going to have to draw that same line in the sand, and we're going to have to learn how to lean into people who are sometimes a bit unsavory. That, um, you, you know, I mean, think... The Apostle Paul, Saul, became Paul. I mean, he's born again preaching the gospel, and there are a lot of churches who still, man, this is the guy. And I guess, you know, if you're just going to think about it in the flesh, you could understand why they were a little leery about him uh, because of, um, you know, his past and, and, and what he had uh, done to, uh, to other people. Praise God. All right, now, we've got another therefore in verse 17. It says, um, therefore, so one more time, in light of, in light of, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let me, um, let me start for just a moment. Those of you who, uh, who are watching online or, or you know, with us, I'm, I didn't get the warning last week, but I'm getting a little warning here that, that we're having some... Uh, uh, processing issues, and we're gonna we're gonna get a, um, a a computer that's powerful enough to uh, to do this. So, but I'm just saying, if by some chance we're disconnected, just wait right there. Uh, praise Jesus, worship Jesus, whatever. Eat you some Pringles, whatever. <laughs> I'll be right back. I promise you. All right. So it just that kind of annoys me. I start seeing that over here. You can't see it, but it's right over here on the uh, on the computer screen. And so. Um, I just feel better getting that off my chest and letting you know that it might happen. But I'm just, in Jesus' name, praise God, uh, it will not. Now, therefore, let's go back to the verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Notice, the, again, the verb tenses. Not if he plays, if she plays her spiritual cards right and, and goes to church enough and memorizes enough Bible verses and attends enough uh, discipleship classes that maybe one day will become a new creation. That's not what it says. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, 
all things have become new. So the old is past. Behold, he says, that's a key word, all things have become new. Now, what is up with this word behold? This word behold means to take some time and look closely at it. Pause here. It's, it's similar to, if you've ever read like over in the Old Testament in the Psalms, you see that word selah, S-E-L-A-H, selah. Um, selah is a little bit different from amen. Amen means so be it. Selah means pause, take a moment, and think about it. Pause, take a moment, and think about it. Right? And so in the New Testament, we have this behold. In, in our way of speaking here, you know, where I'm from in, in, in Alabama here in the United States, um, we might say it this way, dude, check it out, right? The idea is that we need to look into this. Hear that word again, I'm going to say it slowly. We need to look into this. We, not the outward, but the inward. We need to look into this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I've been giving you mentioning this uh, passage ever since class one. When you were born again, you became a new creation. You became something that you were not before, the new birth. Remember what we looked at last week, that you must be born again. When you are born again, you become a new creation. Is, the word is, is about being, okay? In modern day Christianity, we put so much emphasis on doing. Doing is important, but if you try to do without knowing who you be, you're going to become very frustrated in your efforts to please God. Right? That's very important right there. See, so many times these things are presented to us as if you do this, then you will be this. That's not how it works. Jesus didn't say, if you do this, you'll be this. He said, if I make you this, and then you let me teach you about it, you will experience this. Whom the Son makes free, shall be free in performed action. Shall be free indeed. Indeed means in performed action. Jesus knows that you can never live consistently in a way that's opposite to who and what you be, or who and what you are. You're a human being. You're not a human doing. You do based upon who you be, okay? So he comes and makes you a new creation. But when we still think of ourselves as the old being instead of the new being, we tend to live like the old person we were instead of the new person we became. So he's saying that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, there's a lot of truth here. Remember, crossroads of many important doctrines. Lots of things meshing here. There are things that are mentioned here that you know, it's understood that it's expounded upon and a lot more is said about it in other places in, in the Scriptures. It's, it's kind of like when you pick up the New Testament, especially like in the book of Hebrews, and you start reading about the priesthood, Okay, well, if, if you haven't read or looked into the Old Testament, 
you know, you're going you're gonna to be a little bit lost as far as the depth of meaning is what he's talking about is the priesthood as it relates to the New Testament. In other words, it's understood, how do I say this? When he starts talking about these things in the New Testament, he's talking about them to people that he considers to have already understood this from the Old Testament. And so now he's just jumping right in and talking about these things, Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek. It's like, what is all this? Well, again, you have to, you have to go to the Old Testament to find out what all that's about so that you can then understand and appropriately apply what he's saying about these things to our new covenant, our uh, testament, if you will, New Testament, New Covenant with God. So in the same way, there are things that are mentioned here that if this was the only place they were mentioned in the Bible, you know, it might leave us, you know, kind of hanging as to exactly what he means by this. But we know that these things are mentioned here with the understanding understanding that they're expounded upon in other places. So when he says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, old things have passed away. Um, if you had brown eyes before you got born again, then you more than likely, I mean, miracles happen, but um, you had brown eyes after you were born again. What's the point? The point is you are a spirit, you possess a soul, and all of that is contained within a physical body. It wasn't your body that was born again that became a new creation. It wasn't your soul that became a new creation. It was your spirit. That's the part of you that the old was completely done away with and everything about your spirit when you were born of the spirit, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. When your spirit was born again, that's the part of you that became completely new. All things have become new. Okay? So... What we know from other places in the Bible is that's referring to your spirit. It, it has been made new. It has uh, been uh, sanctified, past tense. It has been uh, saved, past tense. But the same Bible that talks about sanctification and salvation in the past tense also talks about salvation and sanctification in the present tense, and it also talks about salvation and sanctification in the future tense. So you find has been saved, are being saved, will be saved in the Bible. New Testament. You find have been sanctified, are being sanctified, will be sanctified in the Bible. And this confuses a lot of people, you know, because they're thinking, well, how can you have been and are being and will be all at the same time? Your spirit has been, your soul is being, your body will be. Amen. So it's salvation in three tenses. We'll spend, again, a whole class on that, looking at all these verses in the Bible. I'm just trying to explain to you that this is another place, another doctrine that's understood uh, because of other writings in the New Testament that is brought into the picture here that's joined in with the rest of these. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When you were born again, literally, this is why in Galatians 2 it says you were crucified with Christ, you died with him. Your old spirit was buried and you were given a new spirit. No refurbishing taking place here. You, know, you can go to an outlet store and buy like a, 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 a Ryobi uh, uh, cordless drill that's been factory refurbished. What, what does that mean? It means somebody went to Home Depot, bought it, it didn't work or it didn't work right, they took it back and then they sent it off to the factory and the factory put a new motor in it or whatever, you know, soldered some wires together, but they, don't want, they can't sell it as a new one, so it's now factory refurbished. 
I think a lot of times that's what people think of about, the, about the, their salvation and about the new birth is that somehow you know, God just kind of spruced up their old person, their old spirit. Absolutely not. He buried the old one and put a brand new one inside of you. That's why he says, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, um, all things have become new. And then notice, this is where we start getting into reconciliation. Now, all things are of God. Man, now... All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay? Now, <clears throat> you will hear me say something similar to this at different points throughout our time together. But not only do you want to pay attention when you find the word therefore as you read through and study the scriptures, you also want to pay attention anytime. I mean, you want to pay attention to all of it. Don't misunderstand me. It's all important. But anytime you find that word now, okay, how about this one? There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now all things are of God. Now faith is. All right? Why is that important? Well, what if you read it tomorrow? Will it say, yesterday there was no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, but today, <laughs> sorry, you're out of luck. No, if it was now yesterday, it'll be now tomorrow. In other words, a thousand years from today, if you open it up, it'll say now. There is therefore now no. So this, this biblical truth of now is a perpetual present. He's talking about something that God has established that will always be. It, in certain uh, sentence structures in, uh, in, in tenses in the Bible, you'll find it referring to as a present tense reality that has been produced by a past completed work. Something in the past that has been completed and done is now producing a present tense reality, a present tense result in our lives, and it is perpetually so, okay? So he says, now all things are of God. It's very, very important for us to establish a new now in our lives. We talked about, you know, in relating to other people and ministering to other people that we've got to draw that line in the sand. From now on, we're not going to regard people according to the outward appearance, according to the flesh, even though we knew Jesus according to the flesh, but there was more to him that met the eye, and so everybody we have the opportunity to, to meet and minister to, there's more to them, there's more in them than they know, than we know, only God knows. And so we're there to serve Him and His purposes as it relates um, to uh, their lives. And so, <clears throat> thank you, Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm getting a little bit spread out. I'm almost in auctioneer mode. Uh, I keep looking at this clock, and it's 619, and we've just got a few more minutes, but anyway... All right, I don't have a slide for it, but Ephesians 5.8. Ephesians 5.8, it says this. It says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Hard stop. Walk as children of light. Such an important verse, okay? 
He's talking about what you once were. You, didn't, you weren't just in darkness, you were darkness. But as a new creation, you have been made light. But now, but now, see, the devil always wants to blur the lines between what was and what is. Okay? He never wants you to draw that line in the sand. He never wants you to establish that but now in your life. Okay? And as long as we allow him to do that, he will, he will use the things from our past to bleed through into our present and even forward into our future and, and keep contaminating days that we haven't even lived yet. So it's very important for us to learn how to say to the devil, that was then, but this is now. This is now, but now, but now. And so now all things are of God. Now all things are of God. I'm not saying that we haven't all done things in the past that we wish we hadn't have done. Okay. But that was then. This is now. We were once darkness, but now, but now we're light in the Lord. So now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Let's talk for a minute about this word reconcile or reconciliation. Um, reconcile, I'll put it up on, on, uh, on the screen. Reconcile means to reestablish a close relationship between. To reestablish a close relationship between. To make compatible or consistent. To check against another for accuracy. Right, to establish harmony between. Okay, now I know that that's a, a lengthy definition, and for those of you who know, um, been around my teaching for any period of time, you know that normally when I give a definition for something, I try to make it as simple and as concise as possible and say it four or five times so that it'll stick, you know, in your heart and mind. This one is uh, a lot more uh, wordy, but given the importance of reconciliation, I feel like um, all of this is needed, and maybe then some, to really communicate effectively what this word reconcile, reconciliation, being reconciled to God, being given the ministry of reconciliation, what all of this actually um, means. Um, I've got it somewhere in my notes. I'm looking for it now, but it's okay. Uh, I can quote it for you. Dr. Neil T. Anderson has a quote about reconciliation. He says that God has a one-item agenda that can be expressed in one word, reconciliation. Okay. So Father God is, um, is all about it. I sensed in my sensor from... <laughs> doing this so many times that when I took that definition down, somebody was going, whoa, no, wait, I didn't get it all written down. So let me put it back on the overlay. Reconcile, what does it mean? It means to reestablish a close relationship between, to make compatible or consistent, to check against another for accuracy, to establish harmony between. One of my favorite ways to communicate what reconciliation is um, and what it means to God is I say it this way. Okay, you ready? Daddy wants his kids back. 
I mean, it's just that simple. Um, he knew you, as we've said so many times already. He knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. He set his love upon you before you ever breathed oxygen in this environment. Jesus had already agreed to die for you a horrible death and be punished for your, your wrongdoing and my sin and my wrongdoing. Um, all of this before time began. There is no life. The devil doesn't create life. He can't create life. All life came forth from God. We all came forth from him. And whether you believe in him or not, we're all headed back to him. You're all going, we're all going to stand before him one day. And the reality of reconciliation is that Father loves you. He longs for you. He sings over you while you sleep. He numbers your hairs, the, the hairs on your head, right? And, um, and, and he wants you back. He, he wants to, to, to be reunited and reestablished in that close relationship with you. Now, the key word here on reconciliation, reestablish, um, so let's say that, um, and we've seen God do this many, many times over the years here at Heritage. Let's say that uh, a husband and wife uh, have some issue in their marriage and they separate, um, but they both get before God, maybe, you know, seek out some counseling, some godly counsel from, from men or women, and, and they let God do work in their life. And, and so when they come back together, we say that they reconciled, that they reconciled. So the idea is that there was a separation, but whatever caused the separation was, um, was removed and, and worked through, and the result was a reconciliation. So this is the concept of being reestablished. If they had never been married in the first place, then it wouldn't be a reconciliation. Um, the idea of it being a reconciliation is that there was a relationship that for whatever reason had become separated, now it has been reestablished. So that's the idea of reestablishing a close relationship between, which causes some folks to ask, you know, so how is it reestablished? You know, I never knew God. Well, he knew you, okay? And the Bible is very clear about it. We were all in Adam in seed form when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. So this idea of being reestablished in a close relationship between, um, you've been in Father's heart before you were ever in your mother's womb. He, he's known you and loved you before you ever existed in the form that you exist in right now. And when, you know, he would come in the cool of the evening and, and fellowship and spend time with Adam and, and, and the love that, that he had for him then has never changed. And so Father wants his kids back. He wants to be reestablished in that close relationship with you and with me and with every member of the human race to make compatible or consistent. That's the other aspect of this uh, definition, to make compatible. When, when there is incompatibility, that, that means two things. It's like oil and water. They just, they don't, <laughs> it's a crazy word. They don't jive. They don't mix well. They don't work together well. This is why we became this new creation. Our, our, old sin nature, the old nature that we had that was one born of disobedience that, was, that made us children of, of wrath, we were not compatible. We were not um, consistent um, with God at all. But he has made us compatible with him once again. This is what it means to be born from above, to be born of the Spirit, to be born of the Word of God, to be born of God makes us compatible and consistent with him all the way to the point of our born-again spirit has already been made one with him. The Bible says that 
when he put that new spirit in you, that your newborn again spirit and his Holy Spirit became one spirit. So much, so it's like if I was to take these two bottles of water and pour them into the same um, picture, uh, it'd be impossible to know uh, which one came out of the bottle on the right and which one came out of the bottle on the left. And so your, your newly born again spirit came from God and then God's spirit now has become one uh, inside of you and you have become one inside of God with God. We talked about this last week, right? Being made one with God. And so it's not just that we're compatible and we'll figure out some way now to get along with God. We've been made one with God. Now, the, the last um, or the next last part of this definition to check against another for accuracy. To check against another for accuracy. So let's, um, <clears throat> I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to make sure that I get this part at least introduced tonight before we're done. I know that uh, the internet and online banking and, uh, you know, paperless statements and all that it has in many ways changed the way um, you know, people manage their, their money and their finances. But whether you do it digitally or whether you still, you know, get the paper statement in the, in the mail or not, um, it, you know, reconciling a checkbook is still reconciling a checkbook. Now, if you've never done that or that's kind of a foreign concept to you, let me just real quick like explain what I mean by reconciling a checkbook. If you have a checking account, um, once a month, the uh, bank is going to send you a monthly statement. And in that monthly statement, they're going to have all the transactions you made um, from that uh, account, um, how many deposits you made into that account, and how many withdrawals you made from that account, how many checks you wrote, maybe use a debit card, uh, Venmo, all these different means of, of uh, navigating financially in our world today. And so you have, you know, if it's on your smartphone or, you know, if you still, you know, am I the only person you just, you, just, you know, pray for patience, right? And, and let's just be kind and gentle and considerate like all those things the Bible tells us to be, you know, but you're in a hurry in the grocery store and, um, and then you got that lady that pulls out the checkbook, you know, and she's, just, you know, you know, I like take my watch and stick it up there, you know, and tell them bye, you know, but anyway, um, so maybe you still use that checkbook or however you do it. But the idea behind reconciling a checkbook is that once a month, you've got to bring what you think you have into alignment with what you really have. Okay, So you've got how much money you think you've got at the end of the month, but then you've got the statement right, that says how much. And so the idea of reconciling a checkbook is when you bring what you think, hear me carefully please, it's when you bring what you think into alignment with the truth. Whew, that's important right there. It's when you bring what you think into alignment with the truth. Okay, So the Word of God then becomes our statement of truth and reconciliation is, we'll talk more about this, I'm not trying to get too far ahead of you or too far over your head but reconciliation is this process again discipleship and reconciliation go hand in hand it's it's this process by which what we think is true about us 
is brought into alignment with what God says is true about you. See, God says you're righteous. You, in your own registry of your mind and thinking, you still have yourself as, as being a, a sinner and the jury's still out, you know, these kinds of things. No, no, see, again, reconciliation, that's what it means to check against another for accuracy and then to establish harmony between, to establish harmony between. The opposite of harmony is a Bible word called enmity. I'm giving you a lot right now, I know, but we'll show you these words in other verses. Remember, this is the, the coming together, the meshing of many different doctrines. And so there's a Bible word that is the opposite of harmony, um, and that is the word enmity, okay? Not enemy, enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y. I've got slides on it somewhere, but let's just, well, here we go, right here. So, um, <clears throat> so reconciliation then would be the process of changing from enmity to harmony, enmity to harmony. Now, what is enmity? It rhymes with enemy, and there are some relationships between the concept of enmity and enemy, right? But enmity is something as simple as a difference of opinion on one end of the spectrum all the way to violent hatred on the other end. But the idea of enmity is that it's disagreement, okay? It's, it's when, uh, you know, one person says one thing and another person says another, and, you know, y'all can laugh and agree to disagree and go on and, you know, eat some corn chips and, and, uh, and, and drink some Dr. Pepper and, and have a great time, you know. Or you can become offended with one another and never speak to one another and blah, 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 right? So there, there's a spectrum of enmity. Again, it can be as simple as just not seeing eye to eye on something simple, you know, potato, potato, whatever, or tomato, tomato, whatever, <laughs> anyway all the way up to what we see in our world, you know, where people violently hate each other and try to kill each other and, and, and wish ill and harm and, and ill will and all that on one another. That, in essence, is enmity, okay? So the Bible says that we were at enmity with God. We, we um, <clears throat> you know, God said one thing, we said another. Uh, God went one way, we went another. God said, it's, your life's supposed to look like this, and we said, don't think so, we're going to do it this way. And so this created this thing called enmity between um, our life, our heart, our approach to life and living, and God. So reconciliation is this process by which we go from being at odds with God to being and living in harmony with Him. And it takes place on both a spiritual level, the level of our spirit, the level of our soul, and then one day even all the way to a glorified body. Now, praise God, man. So many different things firing off in my head right now. Let's, um, let's try to go back. Well, amen. I think we've got time for at least one more. One more verse. Um, so where were we? We were in uh, verse 18 and now verse 19. Okay. Let's go all the way back up. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Let me come back over to you for a second, and maybe we'll just land it right here tonight. Um, 
Some of you heard me say this uh, before. Um, I feel compelled to say it again right now just in relationship to what we're talking about. The simplest and most important advice that I could ever give anybody, okay, that you could ever give anybody is this. Are you ready? Agree with God and agree with him quickly. Okay. Agree with God and agree with him quickly. If he says you're free, quit arguing with him and telling him that you're not. If he says you're righteous, agree with him. If he says you're healed, and by the way, he does, agree with him. The Bible says to let the poor man say I'm rich in him. Let the weak man say I'm strong in him. Let the sick man say I'm healed. Right? It requires zero faith for the weak sister to talk about how weak she is, the, the broke brother to talk about how poor he is. Are you following me? For the, um, you know, symptomatic brother, you know, is feeling bad, um, talk about how sick he is, okay? But it's when we begin to say out of our mouths what God has already said is true about us, not by his stripes you will be healed, not even by his stripes you are healed, that's Old Testament, New Testament, 1 Peter 2.24, by his stripes you were healed, you see the difference there, right? Um, we looked at it uh, a moment ago. Um, for he made him who knew, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in, uh, in him. This is not the only place we find the doctrine of righteousness um, in the scriptures. The Bible has much to say about it, much, much, much to say about righteousness by faith. But again, if Father says you are, it's enmity on our part when we disagree. So reconciliation involves the process of bringing our thoughts, our words, and then once we get the thoughts and words lined up, the actions follow suit, our thoughts, words, and actions into alignment with God's words, his thoughts, and his actions, or his will, we could even say it that way, for us. Amen. All right, real quick, like, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So notice, last point, and then we'll pick it up here next week. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the Jews to himself. Is that what it says? Reconciling the Baptists to himself? Reconciling the Catholics to himself? Reconciling them? No, the world. The world. God so loved the world. So, the price for reconciliation has been paid by Jesus for all humanity. This is the, by the way, this is the good news that we have to go tell people. Um, if you die without Jesus, you're going to hell is true, but that may not be heard as good news, okay? The good news is you don't have to die and go to hell without Jesus, but that Jesus has already paid the price for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit, and he wants to take you by the hand and restore you back into right relationship with God, positioning you to live the life that God planned for you to live from the foundations 
of the world. Amen. Praise God. All right, let's um, let's uh, let's call it a class. Amen. I, there's a lot of other stuff, but if I start trying to get into some more of this, we're going to run over, and um, we've still got a service here um, in a few minutes at Heritage. So let me let me pray for you, Father. Thank you for this opportunity tonight, and Lord, I know that um, I've probably gone at a little faster pace than I have on any of the previous six classes. Um, Lord, I thank you that you're helping us uh, connect with this very, very important um, portion of Scripture. Lord, not just what each part is saying, they're all important in and of themselves, but Lord, that You've brought them all together to paint a picture of not just what you've done for us, but what you've now entrusted into our care uh, to go and do uh, for you as your representatives. Father, I thank you for the ministers of reconciliation that are joining uh, with me now, uh, Lord, uh, during this time together in this class. I thank you, Father, for what you're doing in their lives, for the things that you're opening their eyes to. But Lord, I also thank you for all the men and women that uh, many of these folks are already ministering to. Lord, there, there are folks that are in this room right now that, that are ministering and actively involved in, in various forms of ministry, and I'm sure uh, others that are, that are watching. But Lord, I also thank you for all the folks in the future that we're going to be better equipped and will be more effective in reaching and discipling, uh, Lord, for your glory. And so we just get excited about um, just the potential, Lord, that is in you and is in your word and is in us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. You have a great, great rest of your week, and we'll see you next week, maybe Sunday, maybe online. Anyway, you just know that you're loved, and, uh, and we love you. Praise God.